So who am I talking to, I guess? This is uh, Ryan Eckes, poet from Philadelphia. Yeah, I think we were planning on talking about your book, General Motors. Yeah, General Motors is a book I uh, wrote from 2013 to 16, during which time I was involved in a lot of adjunct organizing in Philadelphia, particularly Temple University, um, and also was reading about the history of public transit in, in Philadelphia and and elsewhere. The book came out of came out of that. The book's not primarily about the unioniz- unionization efforts, but um, it you know it comes up uh, here and there throughout the throughout the book. Yeah, I'd say it's more about like unions than the, that particular unionization effort. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know it's about class struggle. Um, the idea of um, the idea of unions, the idea of um, how to build collective action against inside a culture of relentless individualism, I guess you could say. I was going to say, I think like one of the poems that kind of summed up the book to me was one of the long poems, was the long poem at the end about your grandma in the 97 Toyota Camry. Oh yeah. Aida. Yeah. I still have that. I still have that car. <laughs> Do you still have the uh, union badge <laughs> you got sent? Oh yeah, the um, yeah, the my uh, great grandfather's, the yeah, one that I... there's a picture of in the book. Yes, yeah, no, I just was. I think for me, I I pointed that poem because it combines like you combine like your family's history with unions a lot in the book. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. That's that was his worker badge from the Quaker Rubber rubber company so i just have it sitting in a drawer in my in my apartment in my apartment yeah so a lot of family history in the in the in the book uh and i did do a little bit of interviewing my father and my grandmother um my other grandmother not aida about um you know about some family history one of the interest, like um, one of the interesting things, is like the history your family has with public transit in Philly, and I guess like um, all the trials that, you know, all the struggle that it's taken to just get even what Philly has in terms of public transit. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, I was saying that. Yeah, my uh, I have my father and his grandfather worked for for SEPTA for Philly for Philly Transit. Um, uh, for a long, for a long, long time, um, and so that was part of my my interest in in writing, pulling in family history and researching the the actual history of um, you know, SEPTA, which is Philly's subway system, and uh, yeah, how how that developed along with the uh, the rest of the the rest of the city. Yeah, and like you also talk about, like I guess the setbacks and you know the who framed Roger Rabbit type stuff that that happened across <laughs> that happened all across America. Yeah, I mean for like well, I guess let me say this like for folks who don't know like what what is the general plot and like your interest in that movie? In who framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, uh it's I think one of the only maybe the only Hollywood film that uh 
addresses that works into its story the uh, GM conspiracy to dismantle public transit throughout the U.S. in the 1930s and and 40s, uh, and so there are references in the in the movie to this great street system that L.A. had actually, um, and the the villain in the in the film who was played by. Um, What's his name? Christopher Lloyd? Is that the guy who was also in Back to the Future? I'm really bad at any kind of <laughs> movie <laughs> trivia. So we'll just say yes. We can call it. It's Judge Doom, yeah. right? Judge Doom, right. Judge Doom, who um, is, a, is a metaphor for, you know, corporate, corporate America, basically. Um. That was, you know, that was why I, I did see that movie when I was a kid. I mean, it came out when I was probably nine years old or something like that. So I remember going to see it and thinking it was this weird. I mean, it was a weird movie. It's you have cartoons and people in the same uh, in the same film, and it's around the same time that you know that Dick Tracy movie came out that was popular in the first Batman with Michael Keaton. <clears throat> so there was this kind of noirish element to. Hollywood, some Hollywood films that were marketed to adults at the same time as they were marketed to to kids. Um, so I had a vague memory of the film going going into um, before I went and rewatched it as a go for the purposes of writing writing about you know writing about this in the in the book. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the point there is the way uh, public transit has like literally been under attack in america from you know various corporate interests yeah yeah and so that's you know that's a big part of the um that's a part of the a part of the story and what part of what i was interested in uh interested in in writing about um i mean there was uh there was a an actual conspiracy to dismantle public transit as tear up tracks um train tracks, trolley tracks, and replace replace them with buses in order to benefit uh, car companies, um, tire companies, you know, all, all these oil companies. Um, and so GM, can, GM created, uh, what do you call it, a, a front company called National City Lines in order to do this in Los Angeles uh, and other major cities uh, throughout the throughout the country uh, and that was happening at you know of course at the time of the rise of the automobile and the popularity of the auto yeah this is like in the immediate post-war period and like to be clear like this is like literally a conspiracy that these companies were found guilty of yeah and had to pay I think very little <laughs> very little one dollar money <laughs> gotcha <laughs> yeah it's a grand total of one dollar well, something else, like something else going on around that time too that you also yeah, talk funny. about is um, the the rise of highways, and there's a poem in here like about um, yes the danger of crossing that six lane highway in the middle of Philly, for instance. Yeah, Roosevelt Boulevard, which people often joke about <clears throat> as uh, you know a really difficult, crazy place to drive. 
but it's it's really difficult to walk across. Um, so I actually grew up, and this is in the book too. I grew up right off of Roosevelt in Northeast Philly, which is a part of the city that was built later in the 20th century. Um, it's very suburban-like. There are shopping centers instead of corner stores. It's not a, a really walkable part of the city. Um, and uh, it's an easy, it's a, it's a good place to get hit by a car. Um, and there are a lot of jokes, morbid jokes about uh, the boulevard. Um, basically, it's six, six, lane, six lanes in each direction, so 12-lane road that bisects this large part of the city um and the speed limit is 45 but there's people going 80 and there's people going 20 at the same time and there are these strange overs between um between the three lane segments that don't have yield signs uh it's hard to describe <clears throat> uh but you know if you drive on it you're like wow this is you know this is kind of crazy. How do you do this? So people joke that if you can, if you learn how to drive on the boulevard, then you can drive anywhere. Yeah. Well, I guess like at one point in the book, you call yourself like a person of SEPTA. And I feel like when I was reading, um, oh, yeah. yeah, when I was reading that like poem about like crossing, well, you, you talk in the poem about trying like as a kid, like making a game of crossing those 12 lanes and it's just, I don't know, right, for me, that, right. really, that really illustrated that you were, I guess, a person of SEPTA, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like Fro yeah, like Frogger. I think I compared it to the game Frogger, where you're just um, trying to uh, get across without getting hit by, a, hit by a car. And the person of SEPTA, that's actually a reference to um, a, a recent kind of thing. Uh, I can't remember... On what app this it created, but it's this kind of gentrifier thing called People of Septa, where you take pictures of people who were weird or uh, fucked up in some way uh, on Septa, and you just oh, kind of post it with the hashtag uh, People of Septa. <laughs> so that's um, that was a kind of a, a little bit of a fuck you back to that. You know, you know that's a kind of common kind of internet thing these days. I guess it's like, here's here's these stupid people. Yeah, well, I guess like a good question I wanted to ask you too is like, um, like what's the relationship between like public public transit and gentrification in Philly? Um, good question. What is the relationship like between public transit and gentrification? I mean. The gentrification has happened primarily in Philly. It's happened primarily around adjacent areas that already had wealth. Uh, though it's you know it's gentrification's happening. It's just spreading really fast in Philly now, kind of later than other other cities like New York and D.C. But um, so there's not a direct correlation to it <clears throat> right now I, just, I actually haven't thought about that yet but um northern liberties which was a, a neighborhood that was gentrified started to be gentr late 90s and, and 2000s it's just north of old city um which is you know the, where all the 
the Liberty Bell and all that historic shit is, which is right downtown and easily accessible by public public transit. It's it's the oldest part of the city. Um, and then, but north of that, uh, Fishtown has also been gentrified, and there's a kind of gentrification north, just spreading from north north from old city. Um, and there is part, you know, one of SEPTA's two subway lines does um, uh, run up that north northeast part of the city, but it's not. I don't think it's widely used by um, you know gentrifiers. I mean, it's it, there's just more cars, you know. Uh, which has also been uh, going through gentrification and it's harder and harder to park. So what I've noticed mostly is that it's just the city's also not, it was never good, good for, for driving. The, you know, it's an old city. The streets are small, um, especially in South Philly. And there's, you know, parking is, you know, parking can be a, a, a nightmare. So I think that most people who move here don't really use the, the subways as much as they they should, you know, this isn't something I've researched or, you know, looked at statistics for, you know. And then there's West Philly. <clears throat> um, there's been a lot of gentrification uh, around, around University of Pennsylvania and Drexel that that's been going on for 20, uh, 20 plus years. Uh, and that also happens to be around... Uh, the same subway line that goes through West Philly, the market, get Frankfurt line. But what I notice mo most with with gentrification and transportation is just more, more and more cars. The suburbs come into the city. Yeah, I was reading some of like um, KM Cassia's poems. Uh, they also, you know, live in Philly, and they have a lot of poems about you know just like walking through Philly with all like the the row houses and you know taking the septa to wherever and it seems mm -hmm. like it seems like a lot of that i guess older kind of philly is i guess i would say like under attack from gentrification or just straight neglect um i mean <clears throat> yeah i mean the same things that are happened that have happened in new york and other other major cities big cities uh it's it's the same it's the same process. Uh, it's just um, it's sort of it's it's it seems to have amped up a lot in the last in just the last few years. You know, it's, the rent is going up really, really quickly. Um, so definitely, there's a I mean, there's a new there's a fledgling tenants union here that just started uh, and. Um, they just launched launched the they just launched the rent control campaign, which I was really happy to see. Um, so I actually recently to join the tenants union. Yeah, that's cool because re really it does seem like even from LA I can see that uh, it seems like Philly is gentrifying really rapidly, like in an alarming way. It's been called all the, the sixth borough by New Yorkers. <laughs> So people who can't afford to live in New York 
anymore who want to live in New York move <clears throat> move here. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot we could say about New York, I think. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very close to, I mean, it's only two hours. It's a two-hour two hour drive. It feels far away in a certain certain sense, but quick there and it's uh we're only two and a half hours to dc yeah philly's really centrally located that way but it's you know also like yeah. you can just take amtrak from philly to new york yep if i'm not mistaken you can. yeah you can um which is a great it's a great ride i love i love amtrak yeah, we, we love um, but those rides are trains <laughs> you like trains too yeah we love trains this is a tra- <laughs> this is a pro train podcast a very very easy <laughs> car no cars, all bad. Cars are bad. <laughs> Even as I sit in one to record this podcast. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Uh, but yeah, Amtrak is... Um, I took a lot of trains over the last couple of years. And one thing I've noticed about Amtrak is that the prices they range wildly from one uh, route to another. Um, you know, in from Portland to Seattle, I rode a Amtrak train from Seattle to Portland for 25, 30 bucks. And I was like, why is this so cheap? It's great. But if you want to go Philly to New York, when you just get the ticket the day before, it's like a hundred, it's like a hundred bucks, you know? So most people just take Greyhound bus for, you know, fifteen bucks or whatever. Yeah, which brings us back to uh, who framed Roger Rabbit? There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Buses are also bad. Well, not as well. We can. That's that's a little more complicated, but still. Yeah, yeah. They're not trains. They're, They're not, not high well, speed. Exactly. High speed electric trains. I mean, <clears throat> there's two subway lines. They've both been. The, the I mean the train. Themselves have been are, are updated periodically, um, but there's just the two lines: this Broad Street Line and the Market Frankfurt Line. Um, one goes north and south, one goes uh, east and west, and then the rest of the city is served by buses. That mo- almost all of which used to be used to be uh, trolleys. So the, the the trolleys were all over time converted to to buses. There's one very old trolley line that serves west philly it's called the green line it's a, it's a three or four different um trolley routes that go underground and then above ground really wonderful i love riding them so that trolley still exists and there's a gerard avenue trolley uh that was brought back to um encourage people public transportation uh, a few years ago, so there are, and those are old. The, the Gerard Trolley Line is this old school train from the the forties, the same kind of style that you see in San in San Francisco. Sometimes San Francisco uses trolleys from other cities, I believe that um, from way back, and some of those are old Philadelphia trolley cars. It's, it's kind of strange. 
Well, I think, you know, one of, like, this is a good time maybe to talk about, bring it back to your book. Like, well, like the middle section of this book is a, is a series of spurs, I guess you would call them, about the various planned spurs of the, the Philadelphia subway system. Right, right. Yeah, it's um, basically I wrote um, this short kind of essay poem each one named after a subway that was planned to be built in Philly and then was, you know, the abandoned. Um, these were a real pleasure. These were a real pleasure to, to write um, because I didn't know what I was doing when I began, began writing them. So each one's different, you know, they're, they're all, they're all different from each other. Well, I guess like, one I, thing I wanted to ask you about was um, like, I think I read an interview online. You, you mentioned like you thought about the paragraphs in these poems as like uh, you thought about the paragraphs in these sort of little essay poems as like the lines of a poem. But I feel like yes. that, that carries throughout all of these poems, even though they're about slightly different things. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's right. So that was the sort of mode of composition. Thinking about the paragraph as a line. Um, and the way I think about a line usually is there's an I I, I like uh, associational leaps that also push forward push forward a narrative. Um, it's always been difficult for me to describe exactly what I mean mean by that. But have you ever heard of Have you ever read talk poems by David Anton? I have I have heard some of them. I think yeah. So that, that was an early influence on me were these talk poems where he would go to a place he, to give a talk and he would be given a topic and then, so he, would, so he said, it would improvise and just tell stories based on those topics, based on the topic. Um, and then he would transcribe that he would record the talk and then transcribe it in this in this um, interesting way without punctuation, uh, and but basically he would string together a series of anecdotes while building some kind of philosophical thread, and he would be able to sometimes, when they're really good, tie them all together at the end in this wonderful, wonderful way. So he had a book. It was published, I think, in 1976 or 78 called Talking at the Boundaries. I read these for the first time when I was 20, when I was first getting into poetry. And um, <clears throat> the associational connections that he would make and how certain narratives would become metaphors for other narratives, I just loved that. It just gave me this aesthetic uh, experience that I'm always... I've, I'm always in some way after, I guess. And so the associational leap from paragraph to paragraph uh, while pulling, while pushing one further is just something that I've always tried to do in, in, in poems and that I was also trying to do in the verse. Yeah, a lot of like the associations you make are like um, based on like, I guess, endomologies of words. Like I'm looking at like the Germantown yeah, yeah. spur one and you go and you go off on museums and, you know, you quote Amiri Baraka in one line and then you're talking about the history of Germantown 
And then ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, you end up in a spot where you're just like, fuck me and fuck the Ford Focus I broke down in. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So how did I how did I get there? And I like to not when I'm writing, I like, like to not know where I'm not know where I'm going to figure it out as I'm as I'm writing. That's part of um part of what's always drawn me to writing to writing poetry the challenge of that over time is that as my poetry has gotten more political and i have the need to make arguments right the certainty and the uncertainty are always kind of uh at odds with each other and um the struggle you know, the question of how to write an effective political poem is something I'm always, uh, always thinking about. And the, the you know, the problem in, of improvis- improvisation, uh, not knowing where you're making it up, um, you know, yeah. it's, it's always an unsolved thing, you know. Yeah, well, I guess in, in terms of like political poetry, um, I think, I think um, we DM'd about this once, but also I read on an interview that you, like two of your teachers are you know, two people I would consider like uh you know pretty pretty big people in terms of political poetry and one is uh was uh, Rachel Duplessis and you know I think about you know she writes a lot about like the objectivists and also uh C.S. Giscombe I guess so I guess like did mm-hmm. you did you uh, did you turn to their work when you, I guess you got like well, I guess what's your relationship to their work is probably the way to ask that question well it's funny I don't I don't think of either of those at first when I think of I don't think of there immediately though you know, their their poetry is uh, uh has you know a politics. Um Giscombe was my teacher when I was an undergrad. Um so big so a big influence on me because it was taking taking a class with him that really where I really was learning a lot at one time, you know. Where I was reading things and that I that showed me you can do things with words that I didn't know were possible. Um, you know, I didn't know about the New York School, didn't know much about the Beats, Black Arts before I took that class. Um, and then after I took that class, not long after that, I took that class. I started to read his work. Well, I think I figured, well, I should know what he he writes you know so i uh read his book here which is from 1994 and his book um giscombe road and i read uh, i tried to keep i tried to keep up with his his work um he's pretty prolific (laughs) he is he is he is he would he was very modest you know he'd say i write very slowly um but in the last few years a bunch of it seems like a bunch of things have uh have come out um so his i mean i love his i love his writing um it's not anything that i've consciously consciously tried to imitate though you know you can probably draw some connections to it with with maps and digging up things from the past um um maybe writing about borders inside of cities though he you know he writes much more about um 
frozen race than than I have. Um, and then with Rachel Rachel Blau Duplessis, she was a teacher I had uh, in grad school. I I got an MA at Temple when I was twenty. 27, 28. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount from her, but it was mostly uh, her, lit, her lit courses about modernism because she would just talk and talk about modernism. So that's how I found out. That's how I found and Mina Loy um, and was able to understand Gertrude Stein for them. Um, but she also was a very kind of, she could be a harsh old school teacher when it came to the creative writing. She gave very honest feedback. So um, I learned how to become a better reader of my own work from her. Um, and uh, I did eventually read um, some of the drafts, uh, her poetry. Uh, which I'm, I'm not, I haven't been as influenced by, but um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for, uh, you know, the work, the work she's done. Yeah, and I guess, um, like, I, I guess I just want to ask about that because um, it does seem like in your poems, you know, with especially with the essay poems, that you know, you're thinking through some similar things as as both of them, really, in 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 your work. Yes. Um. So yeah, I've been an adjunct for you know, went and got. Um, MA that was 2007 and I taught while I was there 2005 to 2007 uh, so for most of the last 12-14 years I've uh, worked as an, as an adjunct um, and you know I could say a lot about, about this topic but uh I've I've always liked teaching. Teaching is the most the best job I've ever had. But adjuncting is a fucking nightmare, and I'm tr I'm trying to get another. I'm trying to find another line of line of work. I mean, high is just a it's just a total ripoff, you know. Yeah, well, it seems like some uh, bad timing there. You you got into it right <laughs> before the recession there. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I guess I I guess I did. Um. But I've taught, you know, most of what I've taught over over you know, the last 14 years is freshman comp. Like 90% of what I've taught is how to write, how to write an essay. Um, and I've taught at various schools uh, in the city, mostly at Temple and Community College of Philadelphia. Uh, I've taught at uh, a handful of others, too. Philadelphia University, Rowan and Camden and... Uh, this semester, I actually taught at Stockton in Galloway, New Jersey, uh, which is an hour away. And um, the reason I taught there is because the teachers have been unionized there for a while, so it was almost $6,000 a class. I got to teach two creative writing classes. So oh, what was I was that like, like, okay. <laughs> <That was clears throat> I mean, it was, it's, 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 a, it's a much easier load than teaching. Uh, how to write a freshman essay, right? That's a lot of work teaching English one-on-one classes. So um, they were intro creative writing classes. 
um, 25 students each class, and it was a mix of working class and middle class students who commute from all over Jersey. Um, and you know, I hadn't, I enjoyed teaching the, teaching the classes. Um, 25 students is kind of a lot for a, a creative writing class, but just give them very basic poetry fiction and uh, mostly poetry and fiction, a little bit of creative, creative nonfiction. I hate that term, creative nonfiction, but give them some essays, you know. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't have classes next semester there. It's, you know, as you might know, adjuncting is a real, it's a real piecemeal kind of job. So I had four, I taught two classes at Temple, two classes at Stockton this semester. And next semester, you know, I just have one at Temple and none anywhere else. So I'm going to try to find find some kind of work outside of uh, higher ed, which I've been looking for for uh, for a year now. But that's, um, yeah, I mean, I could say a lot more about adjuncting. That's that, that comes up in the book, too. I got involved in union organizing uh, through, you know, through adjuncts, you know, at Temple. We unionized there about four, it was just about four years ago. It took two years. Started in 2013, and we unionized in 2015, uh, and got our first contract uh, in 2017. And then we just ratified our second contract last uh, last week, which I'm very disappointed in. But you know, these things these things often take take time. But I'm looking to get out because it just wears on you. And um, the administration of Temple, you know, I just don't have any any for. Well, there's some correspondence in here with the administration of Temple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, um, that email exchange uh, was actually with a professor, a non-union member who... Is no, who's still there because he's tenured, but he's not. He's no longer in that position. He was eventually uh, removed from undergraduate undergraduate director. Um, so that was, you know, small victory. There have been many small victories over the years, but over time, adjuncting is just something that wears wears on you. I think that that's a common common experience yeah there's a line in here where you say something like um oh hold on you know there's no such thing as a gig economy it's a scab economy long been sustained by capitalist government and i guess you know to me that kind of does bring adjuncting to mind yeah absolutely um uh, i mean the people the gig economy is one of those terms that really bothers me you know because people use it in a They'll use it in a positive light, you know. Associate it with flexibility and freedom. Um, we love freedom. When, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what do you got against freedom? <laughs> <laughs> why do you hate? Why do you hate 
pretty much, you know, that's it. College professor uh, hates America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that brings me back to the to the two thousands. Bush era. Why do you hate freedom so much? Yeah, we can do some more on Christmas material next. Yep. <laughs> um so, you know, teaching is that's the, the, the teaching is a that I've enjoyed doing, uh, but but for the kind, <clears throat> but working for universities and for the money, the instability and uh, no health insurance, etc., the lack of respect um, from full time professors, uh, uh, the fact that you can't work your way up into a, a full time position at all—that that's all. That all gets old. That all gets old. Uh, but you know, I'm happy to see that people have been unionizing across the country for for several years now, and there's more of a there's more of an us among students and uh, you know who are planning, who wanted to become professors. That you know what their what that future might be might be like. Yeah, well, I think I got to ask more specifically, like, for instance, about the correspondence you have in the in the book. Like, why did yeah. you decide to to, you know, publish uh, an email exchange with, uh, I guess, what would have been the what was uh, Larry, well, Larry's role at the time? Larry Venuti. Yeah, um, he was the undergraduate director of the English department at Temple in, I guess it would have been 2015. And so that meant he was in charge of assigning courses to adjuncts for the following semester. Um, and so during that time, you know, we were unionizing and he, the, the campaign was public at that point. You know, we were signing authorization cards, you know, as fast as we could because there were 1,400 adjuncts. And the administration, the central administration was fighting it hard. Uh, I mean, it was a long, sh it was a long shot, um, so, uh, but <clears throat> you know. So when I found out I didn't get courses for the following spring, I was someone who was, you know, very involved, public. My picture was everywhere. Um, I I wrote him and, <laughs> and said, well, "Why, why, you know, what's up? What's up, Larry Venuti?" And so. Uh, I decided. Well, this is. I mean, your question. Your question is saying, why did I decide to publish it? It's because it shows how. Uh, it shows most people don't see, which is how. Uh, class conflict, and and how class conflict, how class conflict plays out in the, in, the university, and how administration operates, and how someone who's supposed supposedly liberal. Uh, open-minded intellectual person is actually, uh, you know, whatever you know, whatever word you want to use. Um, and also, you know, once once that exchange got rolling, I thought, well, I'm going to get him on a on an unfair labor practice. I'm going to make him say it. So that's why I kept emailing him back. Why didn't Why didn't you give me a class? Why didn't you give me a class? Because, um. Because it's you know illegal to use that, and I thought at the time we could possibly use use this. Um, 
we didn't. You know, we didn't file ULP against him, though there were others happening. There were a few others in other departments happening. Um, but, you know, I wanted to put that out there because it's like this is, this is a common exchange, a common type of exchange that happens in the university, right? Um, and so that's it. It's the email exchange is there, word for word. For word. I sent Tripwire Magazine, published it first before, before the book came out. So there is a PDF of it on, online somewhere on the Tripwire website. Yeah, and well, I guess you mentioned wanting to read some poems, and like one that gets at this is like the memo for labor one. Yeah, yeah, the memo for labor. I saw that online a probably, few times. It's, it's pretty popular. Yeah, that's probably my most popular popular poem. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's great to see people just yeah spreading that around. It's I don't I, it's just a a poem that I you know just wrote real quick in my notebook uh, one day. It's probably one of the easiest things I, I've written. Um, so I'll, I'll read that. Uh, memo for labor. You cannot separate the job from the house, from the rent, from the earth, from the food, from the health care, from the water, from the transit, from the war, from the schools, from the prisons, from the war, from the water, from the house, from the health care, from the war from the transit, from the schools, from the food, from the job, from the prisons, from the rent, from the earth. I feel like I should be applauding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I mean, and that, that poem was written more out of a... What was more on my mind was... Uh, wrote that would have been 2016 was... Um, uh, I was thinking about, you know, unions, um, conflict inside of unions and... The 2016 election and AFT and other large unions throwing their support behind Hillary Clinton in the primary against Bernie Sanders. So that was all in my mind as as well when I, you know, when I wrote that. I was actually working. So I worked for AFT for two years in there and also taught uh, a class on top of that. Um, for two, just a little over two years. Um, so, you know, I got to see, you know, the inside of a little more about how the Democratic Party machine works. And um, so the, the poem, you know, that poem, that was something I was thinking about when I, when I wrote that as well. It's not just higher ed, but, you know, Unions more unions and unions more broadly in neoliberalism. Yeah, well, I guess there's something too. Like I just wanted to ask, like earlier that you said, I wanted to ask about maybe in case people were a little unaware was um, you mentioned at Temple there were 1,400 ad adjuncts. How many? How do you know how many like tenured folks were working at Temple at the? Yeah, roughly. Well, I don't tenured is um. Yeah, it's it's a small it's a smaller number, but there are. Uh, about three thousand, a little over three thousand professors total. So it's about fifty percent of the faculty at Temple uh, are adjunct, which is actually slightly lower than the national average. Uh, but most of the full-time faculty are actually non-tenure track. We just call them NTTs, um, and I think. The tenured faculty is 
it's just a number that's ever decreasing, right? Uh, so it's probably, I think it's, it was something like 20% of the entire faculty is tenured. But they act like they're the majority, you know? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, like, the professional baseball union. But that's, <laughs> that's a, a little, that's a different digression. <laughs> the MLB? Oh, yeah, how so? Yeah, because just it seems like that. I think that union's dominated by the players with large contracts, but the majority of players are probably not haven't reached free agency. Probably, I'd have to look at the numbers on that. Gotcha, but that's, gotcha. Yeah, but that's yeah, that's a weird tangent, and no one, no one wants to hear me talk about baseball again on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, <laughs> well, it is some. It is something I think about a lot. Is you know, how do you how can you really organize across large class differences? You know, if you have half of the faculty making about $20,000 a year, and then <clears throat> decisions being made by people who are making 120000 a year, um, it's hard to build. What I've, one thing I've learned um, over the last few years is that it's really hard, hard to build. Uh, solidarity across across class difference. I don't know how possible that really really is, and this is why I'm you know I've been a little bit disappointed with some of the with the the gains we've made through union contracts at, at that school is because well it's all one union right it's so the the full timers were already unionized so when we unionized we joined we essentially doubled the size of the faculty union at at Temple, but that union didn't have much strength uh, to begin with. It's mainly a service, um, a service-based union. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, activity, a lot of uh, organizing happening. So adjuncts, you know, made that <clears throat> have been pushing them in that direction. It's just been a long, a long slog. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of a line. This is this was about um, public transit and city administrators, but I think it kind of applies here. You wrote, uh, the administrators of the city create a phantom city and expect you to live in it. They expect you to become the phantom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like... Yeah. Um, yeah, no, go on. So I think he got cut. Oh, no, I was just saying, were you, were you going to say something there? there? Oh, um... No, I was just kind of dot dot dot. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. <laughs> thinking, thinking aloud. Yeah, um, I think that the the idea of the 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 admin. I try to I try to imagine what it would be like to be an administrator. You know what I mean? So there are so many of them, and what you would do in that, what you, what you could do with that uh, with that with that position. Well, I think the. Um best uh, administrator mindset you got in in this in these poems was probably one of my favorite lines was definitely uh good luck in all your future endeavors types the middle manager chewing on a slim jim yeah yeah and i i guess you know it does seem like more and more of our lives especially like you know i i worked a job where um that got outsourced and you know i i knew things were going badly when all my bosses who were middle managers just suddenly quit and it I don't know. It seems like uh, I guess it seems like um, like well, I guess like what? Why? Why do you focus? I guess on administrators and middle managers in that kind of way. 
Well, the better class enemies. <laughs> uh, I mean, the line you, that you read from is from one of the chase scenes. Good luck in all your future endeavors. That was written to me by a, a, an AFT manager when I announced that I was uh, quitting, and she CC'd it to all the organizers in, um, in the Philadelphia unit to try to make a point. Um, and so I thought... <laughs> So I had, you know, there was the struggle. I had struggle inside the university, and then a, a struggle inside the the union, which was also employing. Um. So, I mean, I guess your your question is: Can you repeat the question again, real quick? Yeah, I had I a good like, answer you, to it. But yeah, what do you see as like the the role? Like, why do you why do you focus on them? Because it does seem like you have a motive there. I mean, I guess I'm just trying to uh, illustrate how. I'm just trying to say here, in, in some sense, I'm just showing how conflict plays out and showing how things that we're told are supposed to work don't actually work. Um, or things that are supposed to function actually don't actually function. Uh, because I think, you know, class, class conflict, class difference is something that's always, always made invisible. You know, it's always made invisible invisible especially in uh in the in the u.s and um in recent years some of those lines have become more more visible and that's that's interesting and you know writers are able to have been able to start naming you know naming things that need to be named you know so i'm thinking of you know the election of Trump, right? That that sh that made certain things. Uh, it made certain lines within the left, for example, more visible that were previously um, hidden. Differences. Uh, another event, recent history. You know, Occupy Wall Street. Um, it made you know that something I think about when I think about 2011 is in the poetry world, which I was part of. You know what? I noticed that certain people were very excited and uh including myself uh excited and energized and into what was happening while a lot of us were freaked out and afraid of uh the Occupy movement what was going on and it made me see actual difference where I didn't realize there was and so um these large political events you know, over the last, I guess, have kind of made certain things. I've, I've, I've been able to see things for what they, what they are. Things that I wasn't able to see when I was, when I was younger. That does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess mm, this might be like, an interesting time to like maybe. I, I'm sure you remember this, but I, probably a lot of people listening maybe don't. Like some of the earliest struggles, like in the Obama administration, especially like right after during the Obama administration, especially like right after the recession, was um you know all that all that went down in Wisconsin, and some of like the earliest struggles there were like around the University of Wisconsin, and you know I remember mm -hmm. various professors there being targeted by I think um Crown, William Cronin was probably one of them if I'm not mistaken. By right, like you right, know right. like Fox News and stuff as like you know leftist professors and I guess you know you're you're talking about I guess I'm trying to talk about you know 
the way uh, academia is kind of <laughs> under attack, but from multiple different angles, if that makes sense. And I'm, it seems like you're someone, I guess, I guess it seems like to me, you're, you're trying to talk about that right now, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, how, uh, can you say that last part again, real, real? Yeah. Real it just, yeah, it, it seems like, sorry. <laughs> it just seems about what's like, under attack right now. The university. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The way the universities are like, I guess being squeezed is probably the better word. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it's been happening for decades now, you know. Uh, it's been a slow, I mean, you could trace it back to, you know, the, the, the I guess the dawn of neoliberalism, the, Re- the Reagan era, which people say we're still in, right? Reagan's been president for 40 years. Um, I think you wrote that in your book, if I'm not mistaken. Did I? I probably. Uh, I, I feel. I, like, I feel like. Uh, maybe. Maybe I just. Read I feel like it's so, something lots of people say. I think, but maybe, maybe, maybe I did. But yeah, I, um, no, go on. But there's been this systematic, slow, systematic defunding of public everything, right? So public education, K through twelve as well. Um, the the just kind of evisceration of public public goods, public services. Education is is one of them. Um, and then the dominant political discourse is always put on, uh, you know, the, the burden of the problem is always, of course, put on the, the working class, <laughs> on the poor. You know, you're not working hard enough. <clears throat> so here's some austerity for you. Uh, so I don't think that, you know, that the crisis in higher ed, the debt crisis and the part-timing of the workforce, the adjunctification or whatever word you want to use going on for, uh, for decades, um, with the support of the democratic party as well, you know, so, so it doesn't seem recent to me, but, um, People talk about neoliberalism like uh, it, it's not a real thing, you know, like it doesn't, uh, it isn't, it isn't happening. I mean, when I say, pe- I'm talking about mainstream media, you know what I mean? I know it's a term yeah, that's thrown sure. around all over in, you know, in academic leftist circles, but <clears throat> in, in general, uh, in mainstream media, people aren't talking about um, the evisceration of, uh, uh, the public, you know, the privatization of everything. I mean, some people are right, and that's a, you know again a thing that's changed over the last, been changing over the last decade since you know Occupy Wall Street, which I think made Bernie Sanders feasible, possible. You know, the term one percent was being used all of a sudden, not something that was was used to be. It was it was a new term. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess like yeah. for me, like one thing that kind of illustrates neoliberalism in academia is like, I think I rem- this, I I might be misremembering these these graphs and numbers because it's been a few years, but like the like the like the so the adjunctification of of professors, but also you know the one thing that seems to be increasing in academia is the amount of administrators. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. that to me, like adju- adjunctification, along with, well, I guess we could call it, you know, the gig, like the increasing 
gig economy, no benefits, no set hours yeah. stuff combined with increasing admin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that combined with increasing administration is I think one of the hallmarks of neoliberalism. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um I think that that's that you're right. And that, that trajectory hasn't stopped and people inside the university act like it's just necessary. It has to be it just has to be this way. Um well, let me. I think this could be a fun question to ask you. Sorry to interrupt, but like, what, like, what do sure. you think administrators like? Is maybe not specifically in academia, but perhaps specifically in academia, if you want. Like, what do you think like administrators like do? What are, what are they doing? <laughs> what, what, what the fuck are they doing? <laughs> uh, I mean, that question can just be a poem. You know, you just <laughs> find a good title question. Um. I mean, they sit at a desk, they sit at a computer, uh, and they have spreadsheets. You know, they have Excel, uh, and they have tasks that are about data, I guess, and um, creating data data and managing data, um, and sending emails about meetings to move the data forward. I don't, this is my best guess. <laughs> what to do with the data next? Um, and then whatever bullshit events they have going on, then they have to, you know. And then probably a lot of it is about, uh, probably a lot of administration, administrative jobs are uh, communication, have to, you know, part of the task, part of their jobs are probably raising money from private communications with uh, private companies to, um, keep money coming into the university. That's what I guess. That's my best guess. I've never, never had an, ad, an, admin, an admin job. Yeah, I just thought that'd be like funny to ask. But like, I guess, too, it gets back to what you were talking about <laughs> earlier with um, like things, I guess, not like working exactly as they should. And you know, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about, and I think is you're using as an example of this, is um, Darius McCollum in New York City. Oh um, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe like so. I guess like for people who don't know, and you definitely should know. Like who who is he? So um, Darius McComb. I should probably just read it from the. From oh yeah, the yeah. Go for it. Read it. Exp- exp- explain it um, as clearly as possible. Um, he is a guy uh, who lives in New York. Let me just open read that passage. Oh yeah, take your time. Yeah. Yeah, I have the book right here. There is... Uh, so I saw a documentary on him that's fantastic. Have you seen it? No, it's, oh my god. Um, do you know what it's called? Yeah, it's in the back. I got it listed in the bibliography. Oh, okay. It's called Off the, oh, never mind. <laughs> Off the Rails. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Off the Rails, directed by Adam Irving. It was just a couple years ago I saw that. I had already read about him. And there's an article about him in Harper's a long time ago. That my brother sent me, and he's I was a like, legend. Oh God, this, he's a legend. It's an, he's, he's a legend. Um, so here, here it is. It's for for our listeners uh, in New York City. There's a man named Darius McCollum who's been impersonating transit employees for for mon- for no money over thirty years. He's been in and out of prison his entire adult life for criminal impersonation without harming anyone. Obsessed with trains since he was a little kid, he knows how. 
how to repair subways and buses and perform just about any MTA job. He has memorized the New York City subway map and schedules. He's even attended regular union meetings, sharing ideas for dealing with management and improving working conditions. McCollum's obsession is blamed on Asperger's syndrome, but the illnesses of our system made his life impossible. He got picked on at school, and when he, when he was 11, a classmate stabbed him in the back with scissors. He found refuge in the subway, befriending MTA employees who taught him how to operate the trains and use him happily as a source of free labor. McCollum, a black man, feels more at home in the subway than anywhere and knows more about the MTA than anyone. But the MTA refuses to offer him any type of job. They even refuse to let him volunteer at the MTA Transit Museum. Last year, McCollum was arrested for stealing a Greyhound bus. That would have been 2015, I think. And driving passengers on time to their scheduled destinations. He's now facing 15 years, having already spent more than half of his adult life in prison. No matter how often McCollum is denied his identity as a public transit worker, he insists on it. He insists on his own belonging unauthorized. He does not deny the facts, but he refuses the system's refusal of himself. He returns to the subway again and again as if to say, uh, I am a part of you. So that's, yeah, that's, that's an overview of McCollum's, McCollum's story. But that documentary about him called Off the Rails, I really uh, recommend. Pretty sure I saw it on Netflix two years ago. Yeah, and I guess to me that's just like a really good example of how things don't work as they should, I guess. In your, in yeah. your way you put it earlier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's an... Uh, it's a... It's a glaring example of, um, you know, the failure of, I don't know, cap, our, our capitalist, our, our capitalist society, our capitalist system. Yeah, and I mean, um, the, the very next line in that, that poem is the one I quoted earlier, the administrators of the city create a, a phantom and oh, expect yeah. you to live in it. They expect you to, to become the phantom. They and expect I, you to become the phantom, yeah. Yeah. They do, right? That's almost every, <laughs> that's you could say, that's like every, every job, basically. Uh, be a phantom for your own good. Exactly, and it, I guess like uh, McCollum is someone who, as you say, as you said, re refuses. He does. Yeah, yeah. He 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 absolutely he absolutely refuses. Or I think maybe you put it better. Um, he refuses the system's refusal of him. I think is probably the more accurate way that you said it. Yeah, he refuses the system's of himself is what I is what I wrote. Um, and. You know, he seems to part of he seems to you know if you see that documentary he seems to enjoy um to take pride in what he's done and the fact that he's known for just uh for what uh for what he's for what he's done for doing what he loves to do which is just drive trains and buses. Yeah, and I guess too, like we were talking about neoliberalism earlier. I guess you know one of the other hallmarks of neoliberalism is like the internalization by us, by you know everyone, you know, in this, in our in the society we live in, <laughs> of of um the neoliberal logic. But it you know Darius uh, is out there just not 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 having it every day, yeah. basically. No, it's like yeah, 
and it's it's it doesn't um uh it's like it doesn't even compute with him to use a um word that makes of robots you know what i mean it's not a robot um um yeah so if we could only translate that you know if we could only <laughs> only um turn that into some kind of um mass mass refusal all at once you know um as we see happening in other parts of the parts of the world all the time lately um i'm just talking about the, the possibility of a general you know general strike or some kind of um yeah, some kind of some kind of massive shutdown. You know, I turn on the news every day. Are you there? I just want to make sure. You're oh yeah, there. yeah, I'm here. <laughs> you were saying about the news. Oh uh, yeah, there's um, you know, I turn on the news every day, and there's uh, you know, talk of impeachment and people saying, "Call your senators," and I think, well, we could just impeach him by just all refusing to, if by shutting down every major city in the country, if we just stop going to work. Um, yeah, well, they're they're talking impeachment. You would have to. You would have deals. to. <laughs> exactly. Like I, that, exactly. I saw that, and I, my brain almost melted out of my ears. I was so furious. <laughs> it's inf- it is. I mean, it's it's infuriating. Every day, it's um, they're new. Um, what what's the word? There's just a new thing to be enraged enraged by. Um. Yeah, that's neoliberalism. Uh, oh yeah, the the trying oh, yeah. to impeach the fascists and then signing a trade deal with them in the same day. Yeah, bipartisanship with Nazis, basically. You know, not acknowledging what the Republican Party is, pretending that they can work with them in good faith. Um, it's just absurd, right? Uh, I mean, what's going to happen when? I mean, the Senate is majority Republican. Republicans are all in support of their uh, their fascist their fascist president. So I don't I don't see. Um, I mean, of course, you know I can. I'm sure that the DNC has a plan and has everything to do with elections. Well, Elizabeth Warren has and, a plan for that. She has, she has a plan for that, right? Uh, yeah, rebuild the class <clears throat> is her slogan, which. How is how different is that from make America great again? I'm not. You know, those are the kinds of little things that I see every day that people don't people don't acknowledge. Oh, I think you dropped off the the call for a sec. You were before before you oh, dropped. Oh. You were saying. Uh, oh, I'm right. I'm you here. Were, yeah, you were saying. Um, oh, yeah. The little things people see every day that they don't acknowledge. Oh yeah, such as you know the difference between. Rebuild the middle class and make America great again is not something that's, I I, I think is questioned enough. That people don't see how similar those the ideas are behind those those two. What are they called? Catchphrases or slogans? Slogans. Thank you. Um, and that a lot of what I've been writing lately comes out of is is about examining that 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 kind of language and how language is. Um, used against us, I guess. Yeah, I mean, this is why, you know, I think 
maybe not getting too invested in electoral politics is key because that that is the space where these sort of things reproduce themselves like the most as far as i can tell yeah uh yeah i think you're i think you're you're right i think you're right and i think that there is uh there's definitely an overliance on electoral politics uh in in this country right you know there's just the exp- everyone acts like a customer you go and you you vote and then you get you get served somehow <laughs> uh, and people a lot of people there's an idea of that's how change gets made um when in reality you know very little change gets made that way sometimes it does but um um, but it's not what creates creates change. You know, people aren't in the streets as much as they as much as uh, as much as we should be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or um, doing organizing like you're like yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess is there anything else uh, yeah. you wanted to talk about, or is there another poem you'd want to read? Um, sure, I could read. Um, I could read another poem. And then, how long have we we've been talking for? About an about hour? An, about an hour 20 right now, I think. Oh my god. Well, time flew. Yeah, it flies by. Time, it really does. Uh, I was looking at the podcast, I was like, these are some really long conversations. Um, uh, hey, what, should I, what should I read? Do you have, any, do you have a request? No, no you, could, you could pick one out. And I guess while you're picking them out, I'll just say that, uh, you know, I... The reason I do long convos is because, you know, I work a kind of data entry job and I can just listen. I could listen to podcasts all day and I know there are a lot of other workers in that kind of situation. So having a long conversation to me is a, you know, I think probably a good for that kind of situation. So that's why I make them that way in case people are wondering. Yeah, I I I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing, too. Um. And also, the the Poetry Foundation has the short podcast market cornered. I'd say so. We'll, I'm going for this one. <laughs> I'll read the first uh, poem in the book, which is a chase scene. Chase scene. We're in a classroom, which is a store. The professor tells us the true writer must destroy his own. Do not tell stories, he says, unless they're someone else's. Do not say I. I look at the clock, and the clock's the wind. It says one tone. And that pulls on me like a sad movie. I just watched five easy pieces. What a bummer he left her and life up in the air like a dead piano. I'm sick of the road as the end as if no gas station rots forever around the bend. One time, the poem becomes its own thing. Not America, not this professor pulling maps down over the board, pretending to stand outside. He's the enemy, which is at least tens of thousands of people. I'm not looking for the enemy. We look at each other and pass notes. Call on me. Call on me. Let's see what happens. I think I think I saw that poem on Twitter. I think uh, Brendan Joyce might have posted that one. Oh, cool. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Um, I, yeah. Uh, I I I'm, I'm enjoying that uh, that guy's poems. That's the um, character guy who wrote Character Limit. Oh yeah. Yep. That's. Oh a... yeah. 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 Have you interviewed him yet? Oh yeah, I've spoken to him uh, twice on this podcast. There, there are earlier episodes. I should probably try and get him back. 
We did. We talked oh, about cool. um, character limit while he was still in the process of tweeting it out. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I just got it. Um, is uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was reading through it the other day, and it was like these are really, these are really good poems. It's exciting to see all this, you know, leftist communist poetry, um, being done. You know, um, and you know, I've mostly gotten that through gotten a sense of that through Twitter. Um, you know, I saw Marxist podcasts. I thought, well, that sounds fantastic, you know. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I, I'm to meet, you know, more like-minded poets in person in the, in the, in the future. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, yeah, I guess one, yeah. one thing I, oh, I meant to ask you about this too. Like, how'd you, how'd you come on to this kind of lefty, poetry online scene how'd, how'd you find it i guess um i mean i don't know i i think i, th- I think we just i guess just it, i think how twitter actually works just made it happen i guess i i mean they're po- i'm not especially adept at uh uh social media um but um i think through just friends of friends you know people start following each other so uh, um, I've just noticed this, I guess, over the last, I don't know, six months or so, that there are a lot of um, uh, poets, poets who are younger than me who are just explicitly anti-capitalists, um, communists. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's exciting to me. Um, and uh i'm 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 really uh happy happy to see that you know i ever heard you know there were the language poets who said they were marxist you know what i mean but they didn't i've ne- i've never heard of something called a marxist marxist poetry podcast or journal that's just so explicit explicit like that you know um so anyway, I'm just kind of rambling a little bit, but I didn't. St- I just kind of stumbled. I just, you know, Twitter does what it does, and I every every day, every few days, I'm like, oh, more, this is a person who's into the kind of shit I'm into. All right, cool. Um, but I'm not good communicating <laughs> communicating on there. I'm trying to be, um, trying to be trying to get better at it. I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I guess like um, maybe maybe this is a good question. Maybe to end on would be like um, how like would you have what do you have any do you have any advice? I guess for some of the for these younger lefty poets out there. Oh, advice. I mean, um, I I guess meet in person when you can. Uh, <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, I don't I don't have any um. Don't let the don't let internet break you break you up. I guess that's 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 the only thing that comes to come comes to mind. Keep writing, keep writing, keep writing, keep reading, keep talking to, keep finding like-minded people, and make things happen in 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 the in in the, in the world. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for talking. Um, is there anything else you want you want to get to? Um. No, I think that's it. Um, I just want to say thank you for, thank you for reading my work and for inviting me 
inviting me to do this. It was really a pleasure uh, talking to you. Yeah, no, thank you. It's been it's been fun. <laughs> yeah. Now you can just edit out all the uh uh uhs I, I made over the last hour and a half. I, I don't even do that for myself, so <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> um I start every our, I start everything I say with yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do a lot of uh um I do a lot of um <laughs> 